Hello, everybody. Welcome to 2020 and welcome to our first episode of Animates for the Year in which we will be discussing season two of The Legend of Korra, season two, uh, otherwise known as book two, Spirits. I am Paige. And I'm Chris. And I think that we should just uh, just get down to it. Yeah, it's going to be a great year. It's going to be a great, absolute great year on the show. I can say that definitively, knowing what we yes. have in store. The Absolutely. world, only time will tell. We're in an election year. I have no doubt that that will boil over. It just can't not boil over into my emotions, at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some not great things going on in the primary as we record this, but I want to. I would. I just want to think about um, the Car- legend of Korra today. Cartoons uh, will save us. Yeah, yeah, save us, Korra. Um, okay, so we are talking. We're discussing book two, spirits today. Um, so in. Book two, we have all of our major characters from the first season joining us again. So the whole of Team Avatar, Tenzin and his wife and children, as well as some new recurring characters. So uh, Tenzin's older brother, Boomy, who I cannot seem to find uh, their actor. Um, Like, can't figure out who his voice actor is. It's just making it really difficult to... Locate his voice actor. Um, hopefully, some at some point in the middle of this episode, I will figure out um, who it is. Uh, also, Tenzin's older sister, Kaya, voiced by Lisa Edelstein, aka Cuddy from House. Uh, Cora's cousin, Eska. She is twin, fraternal twin cousins, Eska and Desna. Don't know who plays Desna. We don't really care, really. We mostly care about Eska, who's voiced by Aubrey Plaza. Yeah, April from uh, Parks and Rec, uh, also being mean on the show. Her classic deadpan shtick. It's like her niche is being dark and... uh, Yeah, dark and mean, except for in like a couple of movies that she's done. Okay, so found out who Boo's voice actor is. His name is Richard Real. He's not really of note. Um, Like he's, you know, been working since the 70s, but he's sort of just like a minor character actor. He's He's not really been in anything that you would be familiar with um then we've got uh tonrock who is cora's dad voiced by uh james ramar james reamer not really sure he was on sex in the city um and then uh katara who is in season one but is in this more old lady katara voiced by eva marie marie saint uh journeyman actress you know um she's been working for 70 years she's been in a million things um as well as uh sort of a bit part that we'll get to voiced by steve yoon uh who's glenn from the walking dead so again really star-studded star-studded cast yeah it's interesting because at the time this was a bigger thing on nick they even did an uh, internet game for the show. I, I saw it because there were or, old commercials that showed 
how you could go play the Legend of Korra video game online. Yes, I, I saw that too. <laughs> I think I I always wanted to do it, but I never actually pulled the trigger. But anyway, so this this big cast, you know, big deal here. Oh, and also, um, they introduced a recurring character, Varric, in this season, uh, who's voiced by John Michael Higgins, and he's also one of those people that you recognize as, oh, that guy from nine million things. Like, he always plays some kind of, like, kind of, like, cheesy, over-the-top, maybe slightly shady kind of guy. He's been in a lot of Christopher Guest mockumentaries, um, yeah. He's you would recognize him if you saw him for sure. Uh, he used to be in an old sitcom, I think, or maybe I'm thinking of someone else. As I get old, they all start to bleed together. I think he was in a sitcom too, but he's been on like a million. Uh, he was in at least one episode of Seinfeld. So there's that. Wow. He's he was in Mad About You for two episodes. He's been in like a million sitcoms but usually it it just like one episode yeah he's like he was in five episodes of arrested development very oh that's where i remember him from is arrested development yeah yeah varick is actually like one of my favorite but also one of the most problematic characters on the whole show Yes. Oh, we will fucking talk about Varric because it's like, I love Varric, but like as a principled socialist, I hate Varric. Julie, do the thing. He does. He's <laughs> do got the all, thing. He's got really <laughs> great one-liners. He's kind of like that eccentric inventor meets capitalism meets uh, ethics violations. So there's there's a lot going on there. He's like a funnier version of Asami's dad, basically. Yeah, it's like if Elon Musk were like actually cool at all and like actually had any ideas that were of merit. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's Varric. Well, I guess it's not like Elon Musk at all. <laughs> we're we're gonna try and go buy Teslas one day. And you're going to get a letter that's like, you cannot buy a Tesla. You made fun of Elon Musk on the internet. He'll probably find this. Elon Musk probably listens to the show. He's that kind of guy. While smoking a ton of pot. <laughs> Not that there's anything so wrong much. with that. But. <laughs> so. Book oh, two, good. Uh, okay. Book, book two opens barely after the end of the last season. It's maybe been a month or two. And it's uh, supposed to have been six months. Uh, that's right. That's right. So six months goes by. Things are very much where we left off. Cora's dating Mako. Cora is in airbending training with Tenzin. And of course, <laughs> they're fighting again because Cora takes four seasons to get past that attitude problem that she has. And once again, her attitude problem and weird naivete for a person who is so aggressive causes all the season's problems. <laughs> Granted, she's yeah. being manipulated, but... And she very quickly realizes she was manipulated and tries to fix it and just fucking can't. 
Um, like it's too, the cat is way too out of the bag by the time that she's trying to fix it. Um, but I will say that a major theme of season two is that all of team avatar are fuck boys this season, except Asami, who's way too cool and pretty and smart for all of them. As always, she's perfect. Yeah. Uh, unlike last season where Bolin is sort of uniformly this, good person not that they aren't all good people so to speak but bolin was you know very humble very likable didn't really do anything of reproach this season he gets sucked into fame and fortune and becomes a a fuck boy so that's very interesting to see mako and cora go through some very sitcom-y plot twists to be fair. God, they just fight so fucking much. God. They're too similar would be just the... Just break up. <laughs> well, and then they do, but <laughs> but then sitcom time, or no, mm-hmm. soap opera time, they... There's memory loss involved, and so they get back together, <laughs> and then they break up again. Oh, yeah, that part, yeah, that does happen. Yeah, like, Korra does some, like, straight-up crazy shit in that she comes to Mako's place of work to scream at him in front of his co-workers and destroy the office. Like, that's, like, frightening behavior. That's not just, like, unhinged. It's, like, potentially abusive behavior. Uh, yeah, there, I, there's nothing I have to qualify that statement other than Yeah, that's it just, is, I'm telling the truth, man. It is what it is. The, yeah. th- the season focuses heavily on themes of uh, nature, spiritualism, religion, uh, civil war, <laughs> disputes between... People from similar, like a similar society, but who have very different priorities, struggle for power. Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think it's worth noting that at least anecdotally, a lot of the people I know, they say that season two is their least favorite season of Korra. Um, where for me, I think it might be my favorite season um and i think that maybe part of it is that so all four seasons have villains where you can't help but go "Ah, i feel like they kind of have a point and but it's the hardest to do that with unalak and um it's the hardest to like relate to that. And then it becomes a very sort of like high fantasy, like good versus evil inherent thing. And so I think that maybe part of the reason that people like that season a little less is because of um, not liking the villains as much though. I think it's like, it's a really beautiful season. It has a lot of really rich lore to it and it contains my favorite two parter in either avatar series. They do a lot of world building in this season, particularly when it comes to unveiling what the spirit world is like. And they do so they do so many cool things with spirits 
they do they they come up with very creative just like the spirit world is great it's sort of a mix of uh eastern and western lore about spirits with a little bit of just alternative stuff mixed in to make it unique. We get to get more into the water tribe. There, there's a lot of world building that happens. And some people really like that. I really like that. Some people are a little bit less into that. It can sometimes detract from character-based storytelling. But in a four-book series, you know, you can do that. And that's completely mm-hmm. fair. It also sets up a lot of the conflict for later seasons, particularly season four. Because without what happens in season two, season four doesn't happen. So it's very important. Neither neither season three nor season four can happen without what happens in season two. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, I just remember um, why. So it's really really crucial, I think. And um, I also think that the... That the season is really, really character focused in the first half and then becomes more plot focused in the second half. But Bolin is still getting a lot of character work in the second half of the season, in my opinion. He very much goes through this really rags to riches fame is bad for you deal. It's interesting because it's occurring while the person who's giving him fame is also manipulating everybody else and is like a pseudo antagonist for for the whole for basically the whole season um let's start with the first half okay because uh focusing less on plot retelling uh because the, the plot is essentially Korra's uncle from the Northern Water Tribe comes to the Southern Tribe as essentially a a proselytizer stating that they've become detached from the spirits and that he is there to help Korra become the spiritual avatar she always should have been. And he essentially enforces this agenda with the North's military And so the North essentially takes over the South. He manipulates Korra into doing a lot of things for his own personal agenda under the guise of balance. And that's essentially the first half. So that's any other plot things are sort of details to that. Um, In the first part, Cora does her naive thing again, and we can go into detail here about she's so easily manipulated because she just she gets into this mindset where she just loses sight of the people around her who actually care about her. Yeah, it's like she's so ready to listen to Unalak, who's like her uncle. It's not like she spent a ton of time with him you know, in her life, it's, they live in different sides of the world. So it's not like he's been like close to her, her whole life. And she's so prepared to listen to him and the things that he has to say and take everything he has to say at face value and just not pay any attention at all to what her father or Tenzin or anybody else around her who has been around her whole life and taking care of her, um, have to say, and I think that a lot of it, she's very teenagery, 
in the first half of this season. Like she's super mad at her dad for like no apparent reason, just furious at him. And she's constantly fighting with her boyfriend. (laughs) She's looking for, I maybe some of that is she's looking for the counter. Like teenagers are very like looking for the autonomy opposite thing that people in their life, like they're trying to make it on their own, but in their attempts to make it on their own, they're kind of just falling into a group or a, a thing that the people in their lives are opposed to. Sort of like that weird react, like reactance. It's not actual autonomy. It's just, I want to be something you don't want me to be. Yeah, it's like we start the season and she's just really pissed off at her dad. And it just seems like she's just pissed off at her dad because he's her dad and she's a teenager. And therefore, when like, uh, Unalak tells her something negative about her dad. She just believes him. <laughs> like, yeah, she doesn't is... question it. She's like, oh, I always knew that my dad was a fucking horrible person. This is so Unalak informs Cora that her father was from the Northern Water Tribe and he was exiled because he did something bad. Okay. So. She's really betrayed. She feels betrayed because she's like, dad, you lied to me my entire life. Number one, she thinks she's entitled to know everything about another person's life. (laughs) Number two, she feels that she's been lied to. And yet she doesn't apply the same logic to Unalak. (laughs) Because he also could have told her that at any point. Yeah, if your dad lied to you, why wouldn't you also think that other people are going to lie to you too? <laughs> so we, the setup for this is just, you more than the first one, I think you see where it's going almost immediately. You're just like, okay, I know where this is going. Unalak is clearly this silver-tongued smooth talker who knows exactly how to manipulate his niece. And that's exactly what he's doing. And and I can tell that this is going to end badly. And lo and behold, that's exactly the way it goes. Uh, Unalak yeah. tells Korra she needs to open a spirit portal to reinstate balance. And that, that, that balance concept like keeps coming up over and over and over. It's never really given a reason. It's just like balance is good for its own sake sort of deal like oh you southern water tribers have fallen so out of balance it does bring in this very interesting perspective on modernization because the southern water tribe are modernized so to speak so wow you're involved in all this bread and circuses and all your distractions and your fancy things but you've lost touch with the natural world you know, there's like that's a perspective that many people have taken, right? It's like the whole fucking idea behind Walden. So this is an idea that gets capitulated here in a cartoon. So it's interesting. I, I there's was, a level of romanticism to it, yeah. But something that I think is important to note because the concept of balance is important throughout both of the Avatar series. The idea is that. What one the part of the avatar's role is to bring balance to the world, but when Unalak invokes it, it becomes unclear uh, what exactly balance constitutes, and it seems to Unalak 
balance means whatever like puts him in the most power. That's what balance is. You know, it was like the Southern Water Tribe is unbalanced because they have like a fun fair instead of a religious fasting day. You know, um, and uh, you know they would be more balanced if Unalak were in charge. I think that he really, as a as a villain, he's a religious zealot. Um, and he's not only a zealot, but he thinks himself to be a prophet. And his way of looking at, um, for lack of a better word, like the state religion of the entire world is uh, actually really heterodox. He comes across at first as being extremely orthodox, but he is actually sort of a fringe zealot. And he never really explains to us why... The situation that currently exists is a bad one per se. Usually when people talk about balance, they talk about that in reference to people, like what the unbalance is doing to people. For example, you could argue people living in modern societies have lost balance with the natural world, which is resulting in... Feelings of isolation, of loneliness, uh, destruction of resources, or of the natural world. But he never says any of that. It's kind of left completely vague. So now, in retrospect, we're kind of left to wonder, is, is it really necessary for spirits to exist in the physical world? Like, is that actually balance, per se? So, you know... It would be cool if he had said some of that, but he just leaves it vague and Cora just fucking eats it up. Oh, yeah. It's because she's seeking maturity, but doesn't actually know what any of that means because she's like 17. (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of the difference between wisdom and like an ideal. She completely lacks wisdom, which to her uh, credit, the others in her life are also quite unattuned to spiritual matters. Uh, Even Mm -hmm. Tenzin, who we later find out, uh, things from the first season become relevant to Tenzin too, this season, because he eventually tries to be sort of a spiritual guide to Korra, but we find out that he's actually pretty bad at it. Not because he doesn't respect spirits per se, but because he's incredibly rigid about how to approach that. And it's all about tradition, traditional Mm -hmm. approaches to spirituality. And this turns out to be pretty unwise. We sort of get a a children are unblemished wisdom approach here too, because Janora turns out to be sort of a spiritual prophet or Mm -hmm. or a master, so to speak. I also think that there's like a degree of it that um, that is about sort of like, look, just not everybody is going to be spiritually gifted. Like not everybody is going to have a strong connection to the spiritual world. Um, and no matter how much time you devote to earthly spirituality, you can't force it. Um, and that I think is part of, of Tenzin's problem. Um, I would like to spend a little more time talking about some of the character stuff in the first half of the season and then maybe move on to the 
also the character stuff and, and world building that goes on in the second half. What do you think? Yeah, I uh, the only thing I would like that I was going to uh, add to that particular part was that everyone in Core's life in the beginning is talking about spiritual matters, but they're they also don't really expand on it at all. So Cora hears all this stuff about you need to be spiritual, but nobody has really told her what that means or how to go about it. So when Unalak appears in the beginning, he appears to have the answer to that question. And he actually has bending techniques that can be used to help spirits. So Cora sees one vivid example of practical spiritual knowledge in action and this person is focused on this and appears to have a path and i think that's particularly why she sort of gets sucked into it yeah i i absolutely agree and i think that she just feels she's also like obsessed with the idea that someone is on her side or not during this season it comes up a lot with her and mako because she and mako do not have a good relationship. They're constantly fighting. And if he does, if he ever like says anything out of agreement with her, she'll be like, what are you on their side? And he's like, what, what is with you and sides? There aren't any sides. Not that Mako is a good boyfriend, but he's right with that. She's like obsessed with the idea that people are or are not on her side. Um, during the beginning here, we also get introduced well hmm. so i think something that's also interesting is that cora's relationship with her parents gets expanded more on here uh, particularly because Unalak eventually manipulates cora into opening a spirit portal in the south and we know that he's fucking with cora because he never explains why that's necessary other than this will bring balance and the spirits will be happy about it. He never, that's all. And, and she's like, yeah, fucking let's do it. Man. <laughs> let's do it, man. Uh, so she, they all go to the very South pole and she opens this portal. And then Unalak, this is the part where I cannot believe that Cora would let this go. Because Unalak says, now that we've opened the portal, we have to make sure that nobody interferes with it. And do you know a really good way to go about that? It's to violate the sovereignty of your home nation <laughs> and invade and create a blockade. That's the right way to do it. And Korra's first response isn't what the fuck man it's oh really like okay <laughs> she spends like two episodes being like no it's totally fine for Unalak to invade and occupy the southern water tribe like technically there is no chief of the southern tribe technically the north is in charge so it's fine yeah this is something where Everyone else around her naturally is really mad about this. At this point, her entourage has left. Tenzin has gone on a trip around the world to, you know, go with his family. 
find air culture, like do all these different things. So Korra is really left alone with some of the other characters we've got around. And at this point, people are talking about rebellion, which you you probably as a viewer go, yeah, that's a good idea. That makes sense. And Korra's like, no, guys, come on. You have to follow the law. <laughs> like, you've been invaded, and now you have to follow the law. So, Like, Korra has ever followed a single fucking rule in her entire life. It's just so laughably... She's just so blinded by Unalak's apparent authority on spirit things that she seems to just uniformly apply it across the board. Um... She fights with her dad because her dad is like, we're going to fight this. And she's like, dude, you have no right to do that. Like, I'll have to stop you from doing that, from taking back your lives. Under the guise of balance, you know, we need to not fight. And it's it's just bad. It's not great. It's really not. It's She's very disappointing in this series of episodes. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it really is in those moments. I'm very rarely super disappointed in her, but this is one of those times where it's really hard to believe that it's happening. Yeah, and it's only after basically she finds out that Unalak has orchestrated a sham trial uh, in order to... Um, both get rid of his opposition, but also be able to position himself as sort of a merciful savior to make Cora like him more. And she finds out that he did this and she's like, oh, fuck, he's like, he's a bad guy. We should rebel. And then she's like all in for the cause of the rebellion. Uh, this is actually a good time to introduce Varric because he's instrumental in this situation. And his yes. motivations are so good to talk about because we talk about rebellion and these people wanting to take back their lives and those things are pretty fair but Varric is a part of this too and his motivations are uh, quite unscrupulous yes so he is the eccentric industrialist that we were talking about earlier um you know he's an inventor he's actually really fun and interesting um and he starts working with Asami and he's going to help her rebuild her company since her dad's in prison. And, you know, he himself is from the Southern Water Tribe. And so he's like, no, we should rebel, like throw off the yoke of oppression. But it becomes like apparent pretty quickly that he's really invested in there being a civil war. And I can't remember how early he says it explicitly, but he explicitly says like, well, war is good for me because everybody needs to buy all the shit that my company makes. Yeah, he, in the beginning, he's like false, he's like a false flag the person. Because that's all he does, is create false flag operations. Um, in the beginning, I think he's not interested in war profiting. He's like got shipments that can't get through the blockade. But money is still the, like his business is still the reason. And so he goes about inciting people and there's a way to do that where you're like supportive and you've got solidarity with people. Like even if you did monetarily benefit from it, uh, at least you're trying to help people for the right reasons and with the right methods. But no, he's just going around 
ordering assassinations, riling people up when he's got nothing invested. He's got no skin in the game. He's pulling the strings from back rooms. Yeah, he at basically at a certain point, um, Korra and the rest of Team Avatar uh, flee the South Pole with the aid of Varric and his assistant Julie, and they're all working from Republic City. And Varric, sure, yeah, he's like a nice guy. He's really helpful. He's help- helping Asami rebuild her business and all of that. But then it becomes apparent there's, you know, a bombing of the S- Southern Water Tribe cultural facility, and Mako thinks that it was... Um, not actually the Northern Water Tide, that something shady is going on there. And then a bunch of boats, you know, all of Asami's boats that are trying to send shipments to the south are getting, you know, getting attacked and all this, that, and the other. And Mako is being Mr. Detective because he's a cop now. <laughs> um, and he basically figures out that it's Varric. Varric is literally doing false flag operations. Um and Varric has uh, Mako thrown in prison, essentially. Turns everyone against him because he's that committed to war profiteering. So he's one of those figures where it's like, on a person-to-person level, he's really interesting and like fun to be around. But he's a capitalist to his bones and not a good person. In the beginning, uh, so part of the reason that Varric is making it look like there's north versus south aggression is because we go back to republic city and this is where it like politically becomes very interesting because you have these sovereign nations but you also have republic city and the massive amount of power that they represent because they're the center of technological development they have uh, a military controlled by the president who is stationed in republic city be Naturally, this place becomes very important for people looking for support when there's conflict between nations outside of Republic City's borders. Korra comes back thinking that this is so clearly a violation of the South's sovereignty. This is an aggressor with no justification to come in. Obviously, Republic City would want to avoid outright conflict and would try to get involved and solve this problem. And in the most perfect example of real world politics that I have seen in the show, they go with this very sympathetic story to the president and the president says, I'm sorry, I can't get involved. He's just like, no, basically. Um, He's just like, uh, Republic City has a president now, and the president is me, and apparently there's no, like, representative government. It's just the president. Um, and I have to face re-election, and I can't spend all this money getting us involved in a conflict that has nothing to do with us, so you're on your own. I think in a way it's it's very informative to how actual political military relationships work because at this point team avatar is thinking of well these are good people this is something that republic city wouldn't stand for it makes sense for people to want to help us 
right? So naturally, naturally, this political body is supposed to be moral and is supposed to help people who are in trouble. So of course they would want to help us. It's this childhood ideal that we sort of paint of government, that governments are designed to enforce moral action, that they are moral goods in and of themselves almost. And this is like, no, this is not that. Militaries do not exist to save people. They exist at the behest of a nation's political system to enforce their their rules and protect them not to protect other people so it's at, it's at, it's kind of nice because the the military doesn't just jump to it because there's moral there's a moral imperative I well will, also part of what i thought was hilarious about that part is that cora cora tries to commit treason um and immediately gets caught and all president Reiko does is just say hey like fucking cut it out and she does not appear to comprehend the degree to which he just let her off the hook <laughs> like she goes directly to fucking admiral iroh general iroh and is like hey why don't you like independently without oh authorization from the president take the fleet of the Republic and uh, just like go get involved dude, in this war, in this civil war without any authorization. And he's like, yeah, totally. That, okay. That part is <laughs> hilarious. That part is hilarious because on one level from a plot driven character story perspective, you're just like, yeah, that would be great. I hope they do that on another more practical level. What is occurring is that, an agent from another place comes because of their personal relationship to the admiral of the entire Republic Navy and asks them for help. And the head of the Navy says, well, if I were, you know, to go on completely mandatory or completely normal but unscheduled, all, you know, air quotes everywhere, exercises, and we were to be shot at, and we would have to get involved, wouldn't we? And it's just like, wow, are you the American military? <laughs> because that's what you sound like. You Pretty know, much, you, yeah. That's like one like, of our favorite. We were just one of there. Our favorite techniques. We were just there, and they just shot at us, knowing full well that being there would get you shot at. Um, and it's like this is not fucking authorized by any elected officials. He would be going, wrote like that's treason. <laughs> <laughs> and then Reiko shows up, and he's like. Do not take these boats anywhere. Cora, fucking quit it or you'll go to jail. And then just leaves. And she's like, that fucking guy. And I'm like, dude, dude. So you're not, there are no consequences to the really profoundly like dangerous thing that you just did. You're facing no consequences for it. I don't think you grasp that. Yeah. There's a reason that like the fellowship of the ring tried so hard to talk to the leaders of all these places and get them to fight Sauron. This is like, oh, let's just skip that part and just get the military to unilaterally decide to get involved. So, on from it's like as 
people watching a fun adventure story, we want the military to get involved because it would solve the problem theoretically. But on a very realistic perspective, we're like, wow, that is really fucking bad. If they do that, that is really, 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 really bad. So Yeah, then basically like uh, the Fire Nation and the Earth Kingdom are signing a joint statement calling for you know, an investigation into the war crimes of General Iroh and the, uh, the United Republic. Very grim end to a very auspicious family line. Yeah, so good. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, because that would be like uh, Zuko and his daughter would have to do that, and <laughs> that's, uh, that's Zuko's grand- grandson. So the first part is about opening the spirit portal. Bolin also gets sucked into Varric, uh, which I, I mean that non-physically, just metaphorically. Um, and also uh, Aska. Yeah, Bolin... Gets into an abusive relationship. Varric sees how likable an everyman Bolin is, so Varric uses Bolin as a propaganda tool by... So we've got movers now, movies, Varric invents movies. So Varric starts to create this series of propaganda films with Tuck Tuck, a brave Nuck Tuck, a brave waterbender. And it's a great callback to like old black and white films. It's so good. Oh yeah. And just the, the special effects they use and the ethnic liberties that they used to take with movies like that. It, it's wonderful all around. But Bolin loses sight of everything else because he gets famous. He becomes famous in Republic City. And Varric uses him to gain support for the Southern cause. Varric's got his eye on the prize the whole time. He's taken advantage of Bolin and his naivete to do this. And Bolin falls in love with this actress, which is very like a Marilyn Monroe type. And, yeah, it's, he, he, he looks down on Mako and Korra's problems because he, oh, he's a star now. He has other things to worry about. Yeah, and he just behaves like a complete asshole, basically. Um, and he also, apparently Bolin has trouble distinguishing between, like, fiction and reality. Um, <laughs> He has a hard time remembering that he's, like, not actually a hero and not actually dating the sexy actress lady, (laughs) you know, Um, and is really, like, shitty to his brother. Um, The fame really goes to his head, folks. Which is a thing that happens. People become infatuated with, with status and money, and it has very potent psychological effects on people. And Bolin... They got a taste of it with the fire ferret stuff, but they never, they were a team. It -hmm. seems that the lack of other people in his success is really what sets Bolin off into this spiral. Bolin has like a really interesting season overall because in the early part of the season before he gets in the movers, um, and he mostly gets in the movers because he's like a rube, (laughs) um, he gets into a relationship with Cora's uh, cousin, Eska, Aubrey Plaza, and 
folks, uh, it's not good. Um, she's basically like emotionally abusive to Bolin and he tries to break up with her and she like doesn't make it happen. She doesn't let it happen. And so he's basically at the point that he flees the South Pole uh, about to be forced into marriage with her. Um, and a lot of a lot of Bolin's arc this season has to do with being this sort of like overly credulous and unwilling to like stand up for himself and engage in conflict. Um, even when he is like just being kind of an asshole about being famous, he's still being overly credulous. He's still not actually standing up for himself or his friends, you know? It's, it's a real 180 from season one. He was very much the communal person in, in season one. And he, he goes heavily the opposite direction, which you could take as, a very potent metaphor for the effect of Varric and his principles on people. Yeah, like basically Varric is like, no, like being famous and like having money and having stuff and uh, being around beautiful women. And that's, you know, that's important stuff and it makes you important to have it. So in the grand scheme of things, Bolin is almost... Uh, allegory for the negative influences of materialism and fame and all these other modern problems and of being girl crazy <laughs> well weren't we all well i wasn't <laughs> but <laughs> um I, i'm so i'm sorry <laughs> you know how you do uh-huh mm-hmm. yeah i bet you were real girl crazy chris <laughs> Yeah, I, I was a ladies' man. But I do think, so we've been talking for a while, and I think we haven't actually hit any of the spirity stuff that is so important in the latter half of the season. So do you want to talk about some of the the world building and, and lore that we get? Yeah, sure. I think the... The only other big character stuff does take place in the last half, and it's between Tenzin and his family that certainly deserves some attention, but it, it sort of gets intermingled with some of the spiritual stuff, particularly with Janora. Sure. Yeah. So um, we've known this whole time that there's a spirit world and that the spirits are a thing, but it never was really expanded upon much. I mean, in the original avatar, Aang travels to a spirit world and he goes to see a really scary fucking spirit Oh, we see so the scary. we see spirit interactions with the physical world when that forest is burnt down, which actually somewhat contradicts something that is said in this season, which is at one time all the spirits were were asked to leave the physical world. So there's either they cross over and not use the spirit portal. Or there's like a mild lore contradiction here. It's not a big deal. You know, some of them stayed behind even though they were told to leave. Okay, whatever. Yeah, I, I like I got the impression that there's like um like some degree of permeability, like sort of you can be in the spirit world, but also associated with a certain place in the physical world. And for some people 
spirits at some time, there's like a level of permeability, just like sometimes people can like meditate and go into the spirit world. That's that's the way I conceived of it. The spirit world is really cool because we we get. First of all. At the time we start to learn about the spirit world, Korra has been fucked by a giant spirit. She's lost her memory and she actually goes back. She gets brought into a pool and there she accesses the memories of the first avatar, which is a really great to have like it's an excellent. It's so fucking two. cool, dude. The animation, I can't I can't ever get over the animation. It's animated a completely different style that makes it look like a Chinese woodblock print. It's so cool. Yeah, it uses uh, really what is a watercolor, I have to assume is like a watercolor style where clouds and everything is stylized like old, um, I saw examples of both sort of old Chinese artwork and old Japanese artwork, but their styles are excellent. Just visually, it's it's a, it's a feast for the eyes. And yeah, absolutely. And um, like one of the things is that uh, th- he um, what am I trying to say? Oh yeah, we see a lion turtle, right? And we've seen lion turtles in Avatar before at. Uh, in our normal style of animation, like a contemporary lion turtle and the lion turtles shown in these two flashback episodes look completely different because it's in a completely different style of art to really give you the feeling that this is something that's happening 10,000 years ago. The lion turtle. So we find out a couple things first, a long time ago, the world was overrun with spirits. And I say that because I actually think it's a depiction of a lack of balance towards spirits. I agree. Human beings were forced onto lion turtles and that's where they lived. And the lion turtles are apparently the source of the power of bending. That is never really explained. But humans lived on the lion turtles' backs in cities and the lion turtles would give bending to people as a form of protection while they were out in the world, hunting or doing whatever they needed to do. And once they returned, they had to give it back. So humans were being given bending and having it taken away on a regular basis. And people didn't know bending styles. They, they used bending sort of like a cudgel. It was a very crude tool for sure. And it's so, like, think like sort of um, like a paleolithic sp- spear, which is not very refined. It is mostly used, used for just kind of like hucking at a mammoth versus um, like a katana, you know, a really highly refined weapon that's a lot of thought and art has gone into and that you use in this very specific way. Juan, the first avatar, eventually leaves and is forced out into the spirit wild after stealing the power of fire. So the first avatar was technically speaking a firebender. Mm-hmm. And there he meets some really cool, fun spirits. And, and I love this. I love this about any game or show or story or tabletop game where the spirit world is alien where spirits take the forms of so many different contradictory things. 
and it always it, it's alien and inhospitable to a person who thinks concretely and linearly because yes. things that yes. look like fruit are actually a hive of bugs. Grass is alive and will try to kill you. Uh, spirits have this really weird obsession with respect, but give none of it back. Just really, I, I love story. I love worlds like this. Uh, so we get this image of, this is really a bad place for people to live. Like people really are at the mercy of all of these things for no reason other than they exist. So you really start to feel bad for people kind of, and the spirits explanations always go along the lines of, well, people are mean and nasty. Um, so forgetting that like the spirits are just as fucking nasty too. And, mm -hmm. but we do see at a certain point that like Juan inspires a group of, of, it's also worth noting that there's like intense class stratification in the lion turtle city that he comes from and he is desperately poor and basically starving to death. So that's what he does, why he does what he does. And apparently he inspires a bunch of other poor people to get fire from the lion turtle and go out and basically colonize the spirit wilds. But whereas he spent his time trying to learn what it was like to be out there and how to coexist with the spirits around them. These other people just immediately started being like very aggressive with their space, um, burning things down, doing harm to spirits, taking over their homes in the, you know, the way that like settlers usually do rather than recognizing that there are already people there and that they might be happy to share with you if you would listen to them and try and coexist. They are really aggressive and violent and try and take everything for themselves without any regard for anybody else. Yeah, that is very true. It is a very good uh, look into the way that people relate to resources and their environment and how a lot of times people really do just kind of... I think there's an argument to be made that a lot of that is because those people leave a society based on exploitation and they perpetuate that even though they're trying to be free. So there's something to be said about how people are taught to relate to resources too. Yeah, I think, yeah, that also makes sense. Um, but yeah, like Juan, what he does instead, and I guess it's easier if you're just one person, is he, you know, sort of travels around the spirit world in his area and, you know, meets... Uh, other spirits and gets to know their ways and live with them and they like like him and respect him um but it turns out one day he sees you know these two giant spirits one black and one white who are locked in in, in battle with one another and the big white one is just sort of like lashing the black one and the black spirits crying out you know like help me she's tormented me for 10,000 years or whatever and so one like basically distracts the light spirit and separates them and the light spirit is like you giant fuck up <laughs> you have any idea what you've done like he's the embodiment of all darkness in the universe and everything's gonna get fucked up for everybody else because i don't have control of him anymore you asshole it's a like, good it's a good parable against getting involved where you don't have any context yeah, okay, like, random human. You have no idea what you're talking about. You completely lack any context. This is none of your business, but you, like, stuck your nose in it. Which is <laughs> just, the most, just the most human thing to oh, do. Yeah. Just stick your nose in where it doesn't belong. 
Exactly. <laughs> so eventually he helps this light spirit named Rava to wrest control and, and, and prevent uh, Vatu, the dark spirit, from destroying the world as they know it. Important distinction there. He's not going to actually destroy the world. Just he's going to change it. It's going to be reshaped in a different way. But something that we notice is that when spirits come into contact with um, with Va- or people actually come into contact with Vatu is that they feel like more aggressive and more violent. So even though the world won't literally be destroyed, it seems that a world where Vatu, the dark spirit, holds sway um, will be incompatible with human civilization. And eventually, Juan travels to gather all the four elements uh, because Rava can, quote-unquote, hold them for him. He eventually does battle with Vatu, Rava, and he fused because Rava is weak, and that is how he becomes the first Avatar. They, they fight Vatu and he and Rava fuse during something called harmonic convergence where like the planets align and then both of the portals make like a big arc and shit. Um, just so you know, they like touch the weird arc while she's like passing through his body and that fuses him. And that also gives them the power to like imprison Vatu in the tree of time. <laughs> The way you said that makes me that that's just like the perfect accent to put on the tree of time. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and and thus the avatar reincarnates because Raba leaves the body and travels into the next person. Yeah, so it's like it creates a minor inconsistency with lore from uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender in that um, in that. Roku tells Aang that the glow of the Avatar state is the combined like energy of all of his past lives. But that's not actually true. It's Rava, the spirit that is within the Avatar. That's what causes the glow. But at the same time, it's one of those things. It's like, well, that could be an inconsistency in lore or it could just be that it's literally been 10,000 fucking years. Well, they forgot. And that sometimes they forget shit. People forget shit, you know? Um, yeah, they forget. Like, Rava goes dormant, too. After one, she doesn't really talk anymore, it seems. So yeah. Either, or, like, like, we don't really know. Or maybe just, like, over time, she's like, uh, I mean, like, you know things aren't as crucial. I don't really need to like have chats with the person I'm inside all the time. So yeah, the avatar is literally the embodiment of light in the world. And is literally part spirit making it makes sense that it's the avatar is the bridge, right? Between the physical and spiritual worlds. So, so that, that two parter is, is arguably like the best or one of the best of the, entire world i agree it's it's the best two-parter in either series i fucking love it it's so good there is uh the spirit world operates based on its own rules a lot of them are like emotions have an effect on the things around you they're they're very to me based on like a lot of the game systems i've seen and and a lot of other things all of these concepts are very uh, very similar you know, emotions have an effect on spirits. Don't touch things you don't, like, don't fuck with things you don't understand. Be nice and be respectful. Um, 
you know, just all these weird relationships that aren't normal sort of in the physical world. Yeah, there's like there's a lot of fun stuff because like basically Cora needs to go into the spirit world and Tenzin's going to guide her, but Tenzin can't do it. Um, but Jinora has like an inherent connection to the spirit world. They've known the whole season that she can see spirits that are sort of like hanging out between the spirit and physical worlds. And she like hangs out with them and talks with them. They're cute little like bunny dragonfly spirits. Um, and so Jinora goes into the spirit world with Korra to guide her, but they end up getting separated and Korra is like scared and angry and lashing out. And so she basically turns into a little girl version of herself, but then is found by Iroh and Iroh uh, comes back. Yeah, it's so, oh God, it's just immediately so emotional because Iroh, apparently much like Elijah or Enoch, um, Iroh like ascended to the spirit world. He just like got tired of life and wanted to spend all of the rest of his time in the spirit world. So he just like went there permanently somehow. Um, And he's just like friends with spirits. And it's great because he has this teapot that he's making tea out of. And little baby Cora goes, hey, my teapot. Because it's a teapot that um, we saw in the two-parter with Juan. And and Iroh's like, yeah, when you were Juan, you carried Raba around in this teapot. And he's like, "Uh, you can still taste a little light in every cup of tea. And it's like, oh, that's so nice. That's such like an Iroh thing (laughs) to have a 10,000-year-old teapot and say that you can can taste a little light in every cup of tea that you make in it. Um. Something that is in the spirit world that's really cool is actually directly tied to Tenzin and his family. Uh, so during the the sort of B or C story this season is Tenzin traveling with his brother and sister, Kaya and Bumi. And we get a lot of family dysfunction, uh, learning what kind of father Aang was to each of them. Guess what? Aang was a bad dad. Real, well, to them. And it, uh, it's what's nice is that it shows that family members all have very different experiences that the others assume are one way when they really are the other. So each person had a different experience with their family and they kind of think this is the way it was for me and for us. And yeah. the others don't and agree I noticed, in very key Notice, though, that, like, Boomy and Kaya are pretty much on the same page. And it's, like, Tenzin that had a very much different experience um, with their father. And a lot of it that they are very aware of, um, that this is the reason why, is because Tenzin was an airbender. And um, even though, you know, Tenzin is charitable towards Aang that, like, you know, he felt this responsibility for rebuilding an entire culture, you know, like he woke up after 100 years to find out that, uh, there, you know, his entire culture had been a, a victim of a, of a genocide and all that. And uh, so he just like felt the need to rebuild that. But like his two older children mostly felt like their dad was disappointed that they weren't airbenders and he was neglecting them. <laughs> I, I think the neglect like the not being around part is probably less distorted, but the disappointment and not being airbenders, I wonder if they just project that onto themselves. I think they project that because it's like, you know, because 
they hear Tenzin say all this about Aang feeling like he's responsible for rebuilding a culture. And I think that's probably an accurate uh, description of why Aang spent so much time with Tenzin. But I think that even if Aang was like, no, I'm not disappointed that they're not airbenders. I couldn't be more proud of you and your accomplishments. It's like, well, you still spent like not very much time with them and a ton of time with your son who is an airbender. So really how, what other impression would your children get, you know, that you, then that you're, you're disappointed in them. That's true. I think one thing that sticks out is that they're so old and just figuring this stuff out. Like it, this stuff really stuck with them through their entire lives. A lot yeah, because times... they're all like in like their. I would say Tenzin's probably like forty, and Kaya like Boomy might be pushing like sixty. You know. So the, these problems have really stuck with them, and, and it's interesting because usually when people grow up, sometimes they come to realize that oh, our parents were really under a lot of pressure and had a lot of responsibility. It's not great that that happened, but I I don't really fault them. But they really aren't there yet. And a lot of the season is sort of getting there to that point. Yeah, and it seems that from what they say, at least, um, there's a lot of, like, conflict between them as siblings, particularly between Tenzin and Bumi, which is a personality conflict. And it seems that... At least based on what Kaya says, a lot of their remaining like pain and frustration is Tenzin's continual project to like glorify the memory of their father and like their father's legacy that he centered his entire life around that. And he refuses to acknowledge that um, they had anything other than a perfect childhood or that he was maybe shown some favoritism as a child and that uh, Kaya and Bumi did not experience the same things with their father as he did. Yeah, to me, this feels like uh, Tenzin is going through either like some cognitive dissonance or he's sort of self-justifying. He's sort of protecting his identity, uh, which is I am like I am the product of a wonderful father who is carrying on a very important culture and like his belief system and his esteem and himself and his father is threatened by acknowledging those other experiences that he would have to admit that his stuff came at a price. And as a moral person, Tenzin would feel guilty about that. And so consciously or subconsciously, he's going through this process where in order to prevent or assuage that guilt, He's sort of adjusting his belief in or or adjusting the assessment that he's made about their history, either by ignoring the bad things or by making the bad things rationalized in some way. It really seems like Tenzin is more the one with lingering issues with their dad. Um, it seems more like Bumi and Kaya are just sort of like, oh, come on, Tenzin. Like, we've all dealt with the fact that, like, our relationship to dad like wasn't perfect. Like you need to deal with it too. You need to be honest with yourself because he also has this whole thing about not being able to enter that he's never been able to enter the spiritual world. And he feels that he failed Aang. Um, yeah. There's by, some imposter you know, he's, syndrome. Hmm? Yeah. There's some imposter syndrome there. Like, Oh, sorry. I thought you told me to pause. Um, uh, sorry. <laughs> 
No, he and, he thinks they're he like he 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 feels like he's not good enough. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And he has that catharsis when he when he and Boomy and Kaya go into the spirit world to retrieve Janora and they get lost in like the fog of souls where you're essentially like psychologically tortured for eternity. Yeah, this, so this is and- that that this world's hell. This was the part that I was alluding to earlier where there's this place in the spirit world where if you get lost or if you were bad in life and carried away by spirits, they put you in this fog which is a spirit itself. And it causes you to lose your memories and it plays tricks on you and takes your problems and insecurities and it projects them onto the world around you. And we fucking see Zhang the Conqueror. Oh, it's so good. Like, I'm Admiral Zhao, the Conqueror. I will capture the Avatar. You know, like, and he's just like walking through the fog of souls, like like yelling like i'm admiral zhao of the fire nation i will capture the avatar like over and over again for eternity it's such a good like callback it's such a good easter egg i feel like they couldn't get mark hamill otherwise they would have put the fire lord in there put ozai well i don't think ozai got carried off by spirits i think he just went to prison that's true we do we do it is made unclear if this is like a literal hell where people go in general or if they specifically have to be carried away by spirits. I think it's the latter. I think it is too, because the spider that like takes them there is like, there's only one place for humans in the spirit world and like drags them there and throws them in. Um, But like when they're in there, uh, you know, he's trying to like keep his brother and sister from freaking out. Spoilers, it doesn't work. Um, And he starts seeing Aang, like grown up Aang. And basically that vision is telling him that he's not good enough and stuff. And he has this moment of catharsis where he says, I am not a reflection of my father. I am Tenzin. And he like airbends all the fog away and like finds his daughter and his brother and sister and like guides them out. And he's fine. And it's like it's kind of I tear up every time because it's like, yes, Tenzin, like you aren't a reflection of your father. You are Tenzin. You are your own person. Uh, A lot of Boomy's stuff stems from the fact that he's a non-bender. So we get this kind of callback to season one between the bender non bender deal where boomy he he's that kind of per, he this happens with people who lack a skill or ability you see it sometimes with um with really anybody where the people around them have something they don't and so they try to um they overcompensate intensely by trying to do everything that the other person can exactly how they do it which is not to say that people shouldn't try to do things, but it's like they do it in a way that they're like, not only can I do this, but it will be as easy for me and I will do it in exactly the same way as you to prove that I am as good as you. Yeah. You know, actually, Booby, um, with all of his big fish stories and stuff, he kind of reminds me of Tony. Yeah, um, a little bit. A friend from college. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, like for those of you who don't know, uh, Chris and I have a friend in college. Um, his name's Tony and he's a prolific teller of the big fish story and everybody was always telling him to shut the fuck up. Um, but then sometimes you find out that some of his stories are completely true. <laughs> so yeah. you're just like, well, what the fuck? Yeah. And eventually, you know, Boomy, just like in cartoons where this happens a lot, like, yes, Boomy is just as good as they are. And he has a badass moment when they 
invade one of the spirit portals and they have to fight off a waterbender regimen. So it, Boomy ends up being, granted, sort of like a hapless hero, but he does end up being a hero. Yeah, and it's like, it's sort of the way that he takes out the whole, like, regimen is like, it's so just like ridiculous and fucking accidental that you're like, maybe all his stories are true. And he just like falls like, like ass first, like (laughs) into like, into like all of his heroics, you know, and that's why all the stories sound so unbelievable. Yeah, and I think that he always makes it sound like what he was doing was intentional, which is oftentimes what people do after they succeed because of an accident. They make it seem like it was going to happen all along. I mean, that fucking happens in science papers, too, where people are like, this is my hypothesis and I found it and I knew it all along. And you're like, dude, you ran that experiment thinking one thing and it turned out another way. And so now you're just kind of shifting it a little bit to make it seem like this was all what you expected. Yeah, definitely. Um, Um but yeah, this is Boomy. Boomy ends up being re- he has a cute relationship with this little spirit rabbit dragonfly. It's very Boom Boomdo. <laughs> Eventually, Kaya and Boomy and and Tenzin are able to move somewhat past their problems, and they end up being like being better for the experience. Yeah. Um, like, obviously, like, Tenzin and Bumi continue to squabble throughout the rest of the series, but that's, they just have a personality conflict. They're just very different people. Kaya is very much like her mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I do like that both of their names are kind of Easter eggs, too, because Bumi is named after, uh, King Bumi, Aang's old, crazy old man friend. Uh, and Kaya is Katara's mother's name. Oh, that's so cute. I know, right? Yeah. Okay, so um, moving towards the end here, mm-hmm. I do want to say that this ends up being uh, Avatar Neon Genesis Evangelion <laughs> at the end uh, because some really fucky things happen in the last like episode or two. Literally, like consciousness becomes a giant spirit robot fighting this eldritch giant dark being it really does end up being neon genesis avatar evangelion whatever yeah it's cool and like janora helps somehow it's funny because we see like um it's pema and the baby and iki and milo who have been in republic city this whole time and now it's getting attacked by unavatu and there's giant spirity cora and then all of a sudden janora is like coming down spirity janora and they're like hey it's janora and like um <laughs> pema's like be careful sweetie and um iki and milo each have like a really good one-liner there too and i can't fucking oh what it is is they're looking out and like the giant spirity Korra comes b- through and like Iki's like Korra's back and Milo's like and she's blue. <laughs> this is I say uh, partially the analogy to Evangelion is because all of this stuff is very poorly explained. Like it, it's sort of like at this point wrapping up the conflict and the symbolism are really what matter. Like Korra yeah. uses the tree of time. To, she bends the energy to, within herself. She she uses her consciousness as a weapon. 
there like, don't ask questions like if you ask questions it all starts to fall apart but it is epic yeah i think like the the most important things from the ending of this is that like because vatu ripped rava out of cora's body and momentarily destroyed her it severed Korra's connection to all of her past lives. Um, so even though she and Rava are able to refuse, that's gone forever. So like in Aang talked to Roku a lot and a lot of other, his other past lives, Korra talked to Aang in season one, Korra talked to Wan. That can never happen again. Like that's that's gone. And if there's an avatar after Korra, we assume that it will start over again, but that that avatar will only be able to speak to Korra. Um, so there's no Kiyoshi, there's no Roku, there's no Aang, there's, it's gone. Um, and also Korra decides to, which is, by the way, like, that's extremely traumatic. Like, if can you imagine, like, yeah, what something just, like that would be like? I was just about to say, that's like, they don't dwell on it too much, because if you start to dwell on it, it's like profoundly sad. Yeah, yeah, it's oh god! Like even like I try not to think about it too much. Cause yeah, like, you can't. Oh, this is the saddest thing that ever happened you in the can't. Avatar universe. Like, not as sad as the genocide, but like the that's the only thing that's sadder. Well, <laughs> yeah, and the genocide is both like a loss of knowledge and culture as well as lives, and this is also a loss of knowledge and like personal experience that will never exist again. So it's it's profoundly sad and Yeah, it's I, it's incredibly sad and it's just like, you know, like Cora in season 4 of Cora is is the trauma season, you know, um but like, you know, she literally had a part of herself like ripped out of her body and like destroyed before her eyes, like it's a profound violation. Um and but then like she and she and Rava end up refusing and Korra like gains a much better sense of herself with all of that knowledge and um, a, a better sense of history and like her place in the world. And she ultimately decides to leave the spirit portals open so because want- she believes <laughs> that like Juan made a mistake separating the spirit and physical worlds and that like she thinks there can be a harmonious and balanced way for like spirits and people to live Side by side. Okay, so this part, looking back at it, she unilaterally decides to change the world. And thinking about it, you're kind of like, that's fucked up. I think it's fucked up. Um, I do. I think it's fucked up. Because imagine how much disruption her choice creates in people's lives. What if people die? And it really fucking does. A lot of season three is about that. Like, what if people die? What if people lose everything they have because somebody a world away decided that this division in the world that already exists there's two separate worlds like why like all of a sudden you're just gonna like undo all of that and ten thousand years of culture and history no warning no discussion just ripping off that gigantic ass band-aid yeah and i think that like Cora and some other folks it's it's not as much in this season and it's something that we'll we'll be able to talk about more with with season three but so 
there's definitely this sort of attitude of um, human beings sort of being like the colonizers, the settlers, the conquerors that enact like violence upon the spirits who are just trying to live their lives. But the thing is, like the spirits do also like do things selfishly and encroach on other people's space and um, sort of create issues for human beings who are just trying to live their lives and like excuses are made for them basically it's like when spirits like destroy people's homes and make it so they have to like go live somewhere else even though they didn't do anything they're just trying to live their lives and now the spirits are there instead it's like fine you know for them to do it so it's like it's it's clear that the show has like an attitude of um spirits as being like sort of like a colonized people but in terms of like the actual events that it shows playing out, it doesn't actually reflect that point of view. Basically the things they actually show are in conflict with that viewpoint. Yeah. Vatu itself and the whole shit with Vatu are, yeah, like that's a spirit perpetuating bad things for, for a variety of people who just, he goes to destroy Republic city so, yeah, but it's like only Vatu, like only, like we see lots of spirits be assholes and it's kind of like, well, they're assholes, but you know, sometimes people are assholes. Um, but like if human beings like are like, well, now there's like a bunch of vines in the apartment building where I, where I used to live and I can't live there anymore and I'm homeless now. It's like, well, you know what? You should just fucking deal with it. The spirits are there now. Like deal with it. <laughs> it's like, what? No. So <laughs> yeah, not- I. This, yeah, this decision yeah. of course. There's definitely something that's worth talking about with with season three, where we really see like the consequences of Cora's actions in like the last episode of season two. Um, yeah, unilateral decision making and the what's it called? Like it's there's a word for like unspoiled, like the inherent. Uh, oh, the noble savage. Oof. Oof. The idea that like weird Western idea that like they're unspoiled and perfect and it is like xenophobic, but mm-hmm. also like it's both supposed to be a good stereotype and a bad stereotype at the same time. So it's like spirits are given this sort of noble savage makeover, I think. Like nature is good in and of itself. They are nature, therefore they are good. Yeah, but like the like it like everything that we're I don't know, maybe the show's also a little more sophisticated than we're giving it credit for because Cora has that attitude towards it, but we're constantly shown that a lot of spirits are like fucking dicks. And sometimes they have a reason for it, but a lot of times they don't. They're just dicks. That's true. Yeah, maybe we should not look at what she says, but what is actually happening on screen as those choices still occurred in the writing room. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where it's like, well, she thinks that Juan was wrong for making the decision to, like, keep the spirit portals closed because, like, that just made people even more separated from the idea of, like, spirituality and nature. But then in the other, like, you know, it's like, well, there are pros and cons to both ways of doing it. Like, you know, that's the idea of, like, if thing, things being in balance doesn't necessarily mean that things are all good. Like, Rava says, like, 
light grows in dark and darkness grows in light. So just because something's balanced doesn't mean that it's all like good and that there isn't like conflict and difficulty. There is no matter what way you choose to do things, even if it's perfectly balanced, a truly balanced world includes conflict. Yeah, actually, you know what? Very good. I think that is the perfect last word. <laughs> Alrighty, yeah, that's all I've that's all I've got to say about uh, book two, Spirits. Possibly my favorite season of Korra. Um, so, Chris, you said you're done as well. So I'll just say, as usual, thank you so much for listening. Please rate, re- review, and subscribe to the podcast so other people can find it. You can find us on Facebook. We're Animates Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Animates. And if you have questions, comments, or you just want to talk with us, you can email us at animates at gmail.com, the numeral eight in there instead of the letters A-T. Uh, and for now, I have been Paige. And I've been Chris. And this has been Animates.